we're, we're on the verge of another global margin call. And I wasn't saying that as a perma bear. I'm saying that because literally you look at margin levels relative to free cash balances. You look at sentiment. You look at the overconfidence. Yeah, it's, it's more than just everybody on the same side of the boat. It's everybody on the same side of the boat and they're holding an anvil. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing somebody who does what I do for a living, interviewing experts on money and the markets. Being in that position, you have the advantage of absorbing what the crowd of experts think and then processing all of that data down into your own highly informed view of where the economy and financial markets are headed. Michael Gayad is the only person I know who produces as many interviews, if not more, than I do in a week, though he conducts them on Twitter spaces. He also publishes his daily market insights via his lead lag report. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you're too kind in the way you, you reference me. I appreciate uh, all of the work that you do. I have to tell you, I've said this before on the space I had you on, uh, you have utterly killed it. I mean, with uh, the videos, the interviews that you do on YouTube, you're one of the most thoughtful guys in the industry I've ever seen as an interviewer. So it's my honor to be here. Ah, you're very kind. Mutual admiration society. How about we put it that way? Exactly, right. All right. Well, thank you so much, folks. I promise I didn't pay Michael for that. Um, but keep it going, Michael. You might get a nice uh, Benny here at the end of the the, uh, the recording here if you keep it up. Um, but seriously, though, let's. Uh, I got a lot of questions for you. Really excited to hear your thoughts for exactly the reason that I mentioned, Michael. You know, you're kind of drinking from like a thousand chalices of wisdom, you know, all day long. Very curious to hear sort of your, your, um, how you synthesize all that and what your own personal synthesized view of the economy and markets are. To, to kick off our, into that discussion, I'm just going to ask you the question I ask everybody at the start of these interviews. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, I, I think it's important to stress that the global economy and financial markets often diverge. Right, that it's not necessarily one and the same. I also think it's important to emphasize that that word wisdom is an interesting one in markets. Right, I always go back to nobody can tell the future, which is why I try to frame things from the perspective of conditions. Mm -hmm. And no amount of intelligence can increase the clarity of one's crystal ball. Right, we're all dealing with the unknowable tomorrow. So let's frame it from the perspective of conditions, both economically and market. We're in this really interesting year, right? In the sense that on the one hand, it looks like the way typically pre-election years tend to look. So usually pre-election years tend to be pretty strong for the stock market. Um, third year of the presidential cycle is among the strongest. The reasoning for that is typically their stimulus because the existing party wants to stay in power for the election. Um, so you look at the market, you say, oh, look at the NASDAQ, look at the S&P. It's been a melt-up year, right? something that I argued was likely to be the case following the first week of January. The problem is it's only in the headline averages. So while on the surface, it looks like we're kind of following that pre-election year script, the reality is for all the screaming about a new bull market, you don't have a new bull market in small caps. You don't have a new bull market in emerging market stocks. You only have it in a select number of stocks which are masking otherwise relative weakness, certainly on an after-inflation-adjusted basis. Now, that's the market in terms of where we've been. You then have to ask yourself, well, why is it that small caps have not participated? Why is it that emerging markets have not participated to the same extent 
that you would expect in a pre-election year? And the answer to that then goes into the global economy. Okay, When you think about what's happened post-COVID, we had the fastest rate hike cycle in history against the lowest rates ever. And a lot of corporations, many small cap companies, locking in loans at very low rates post-COVID that mature in a three, four-year time frame. So now you start saying to yourself, okay, interesting. You have the fastest rate hike cycle in history, which acts with a huge lag on the economy. We should talk about that because I'm blown away that people forgot about that. I'm so um, glad you said that. Don't worry. No, I really am. Blown away. Blown away by that. On, on but, the list. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but more importantly, like, why is it that small caps have not participated? Maybe because there's an anticipation that a lot of these zombie companies are not going to be able to roll over their debt into higher rates next year. So the market as a discounting mechanism is preventing them from participating in the melt-up, which is primarily being driven by large caps. That's where the economy, I think, fits into sort of the intermarket behavior. On the emerging market side, international side, it's not that different of a story. I mean, you talk about the fastest rate hike cycle in history. It's been largely a technology-driven story this year. Most emerging markets are not, in terms of their composition, heavy on technology. They're not heavy on AI. Yeah, exactly. Not heavy on AI, right? So it's, it's, it's literally just sector composition, right? And and it's like, you have to ask yourself, it's like, you know, that saying a rising tide lifts all boats is literally, not, it's literally not happening. And I think it's not happening because there are other parts that the stock market, the real stock market, not the S&P, not the NASDAQ are sensing about the future state of credit and the economy, but again, with a delay. All right. I'm, I'm so glad you talked about the delay and the lag effect. Um, like I said, I, I, I've got that here on the list. It's something I've been hammering, I think, maybe even to the danger of hammering too much in, in my videos in the past couple of months or so. So we'll get into that. Um, so I guess very quickly before we get to that exact topic, um, can you just explain your lead lag framework? Um, I believe you know it's it's so important to your worldview outlook. You named your your subscription service and your your Twitter account uh, the lead lag report. Um, and I'm curious in your answer if you're going to just address. Do you sort of take a cyclical view? the way that thinkers like um, Lakshman Achuthan or Michael Kantrowitz, um, Eric Besmajan, you know, those type of thinkers, do, do you look at the world similar to they because they're very cycles driven? Yeah, okay, so, so I always emphasize there's no gurus, only cycles. Everything's about cycles. Now, by the way, that dovetails very much into the frustration I've had as a portfolio manager, separate from the lead lag report of these funds, um, because it's been a cycle of whipsaws in a pure risk on world that's driven by just large caps, which is mm -hmm. a whole other topic. But the framework that that I built, right, which is largely based off the, these research studies that won these different awards, um, basically argues that it's not about trend, it's about volatility dynamics. So oftentimes people think, for example, that a moving average tells you you're in an uptrend or a downtrend. Moving average, I would argue, doesn't tell you anything about trends. It tells you about volatility dynamics changing. Usually, for example, when you're above a moving average, volatility in the stock market tends to be lower on average, whereas mm -hmm. if you're below moving average, volatility tends to be higher. Not about trend. Even though there is a link between higher volatility and lower markets, it's not always the case. So the whole idea of lead lag is that there are some leading indicators that can tell you when the conditions favor higher or lower volatility. 
higher volatility being risk off, lower volatility being risk on. Those tend to historically be utilities relative to the broader stock market, long duration treasuries relative to intermediate, lumber relative to gold, the moving average itself, and then from a mean aversion perspective, the VIX level. So it's really all about volatility. Now, on the point about sort of longer cycles, as you know, right, the joke about a cycle changes, you don't know if you're in a new cycle until two to three years after the cycle has already changed. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, you just don't know. It has to already change and you have to see it with hindsight. But importantly, I'm not of the mindset that anybody can really predict the very long term. And I always go back to there are these studies that prove this. So if you look at old domains that deal with the business of forecasting, and Tetlock, Phil Tetlock's got a lot of interesting work on this. The, the profession that tends to have the highest degree of accuracy in their domain at predicting tomorrow, the future, are meteorologists, weathermen. They're the most accurate. For all the hatred that weathermen get, they are the most accurate at predicting what happens next. But the caveat is only three days out in a 10-day forecast. Right Now, if you know that and you respect that, how in the world can anybody possibly say, with any degree of confidence, there is no way the Fed's going to lower rates this year? There's no way that oil can't go back to 140. I mean, the point is nobody knows, right? But I do believe the short term is a lot more observable. And just like when you're driving and it, when it's raining, you start to slow down because you see it on the horizon. That horizon is not very far, but it's just enough to get you to start doing some actions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, this may be a little bit of a leading question, no pun intended. Um, but what are what are the preponderance of your leading indicators telling you right now about where the economy is going? So it's been a really interesting year in that you've had a round trip in defensive sectors, in particular the utility sector, relative to the broader stock market. Now, utilities are the most bond-like sector of the stock market. So they've they were outperforming in advance of last year pretty consistently throughout the year as well. They were a leading indicator from that perspective. Again, because they're a play on defensiveness, right? Mm -hmm. And then they went round trip and they actually peaked September of last year, late last week of September, last year, last year relative to the market, which is one of the reasons I said a melt was about to kick in because once defensiveness, after having had a big move, starts to break down heavily, that's typically a turning point for the broader markets. Now you have the opposite. Now utilities are back to where they were in November of 2021. Defensiveness has gotten utterly destroyed relative to cyclical, which is risk on from a momentum perspective, but because it's oversold and because the defensive posturing is so extreme in terms of nobody wanting to be defensive, I would argue you're pretty close to reversal in that, that there's mean reversion in terms of momentum turning back into defensive sectors, which would really only happen when you have higher volatility. Again, going back to yeah. risk off. I keep saying on, on X, Twitter, no one is prepared. And it's not that I'm trying to be dramatic with it, although it's a dramatic statement. It's a matter of fact. You look at the fear greed index, it's extreme. You look at the sentiment, and I can see it from the kind of comments I get on social media. There's overconfidence. You right. look at and sorry, stations, just to clarify yeah. for folks who don't watch, the fear greed index is extreme. It's on extreme greed at the moment. Right, right, right. extreme greed, right? So, it's, it's, so there's a degree of, of complacency. Everybody's largely on the same boat, right? on the same side of the boat, which, and by the way, all those people could be right, right? I always go back to, it's not about being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. The crowd is right on average, but they're wrong at extremes, right? 
So the point is, you've got a lot of things that would suggest that structurally, there's a lot of overpositioning in the risk on equity side. And you would expect that because it's recency bias, right? It's been a strong year. People just chase. And everyone takes for granted this idea that we're in a new bull market. We could be. But if you're really going to think it through carefully, do you really want to bet where everyone else is betting? Because the payout is probably going to be lower because you're splitting it among so many different players betting on the same pot, right? It's about expected value, not about just being the opposite of the crowd. Well, what if the crowd is wrong? Nobody's really prepared for that, which is why the payout embedding the other way, conceptually at least, probably is going to be a lot higher, right? And that's why I'm trying to emphasize this point that I could be totally wrong on the idea that we might be on the verge of a credit event, which again goes back to the lag which we'll hit on. Uh, but even if I'm wrong, that doesn't mean it was wrong to slow down entering a storm. You might get to your destination slower, but you're going to get there safer. But you'll get there safer, yeah, with a higher margin of safety. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, let's let's get into the lag, but um, I want to kick it off with this idea. Um, I actually just recorded a, a video that's going to go live tomorrow about a, a report I recently was reading by Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. Um, uh, what's so interesting about 2023 so far is it really is looking to be the year of the recession that wasn't, yeah, yeah. right? So to your point about everybody on the same side of the boat, I mean, everybody, myself included, right? Coming into the end of last year was warning that, look, the, 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 the odds of a recession in 2023 are uncomfortably high, maybe even dangerously high. And I interview uh, Lance Roberts on this channel every week for our, our weekly market recap. And to his credit, Lance was waving the same flag you were, where he said, look, you know, when, when the vast majority becomes so confident that something's going to happen, it's almost a corollary. You can be confident that actually something completely different is going to happen instead, right? And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, we're, we're still waiting for this recession that kind of forgot to show up, right? And... Um, Yes, we've had this um, this rally, vicious rally in the markets, largely driven by the AI narrative, which is amongst these very few stocks, as you mentioned earlier, but they're the big market cap stocks and they can kind of drag the indices up with them. AI is not really hitting the economy that much right now, right? It's a, it's a future promise, right? So the question is, is like, so what happened? Like, why did we not get the recession that we thought? Why, to your question, has the lag effect not manifested itself, right? We've had this incredibly extreme uh, increase in interest rates, QT commensurate with that, bank credit tightening on top of that with worries about the banking system, right? We're now a year and a half-ish into since the Fed started hiking interest rates. Why has the lag effect not materialized in force yet, right? And what Mike Wilson was writing about is, if you look at the data, absolutely, monetarily, we are stomping on the brakes. That's what the Fed's been doing. It's continuing to do. It's not letting up until inflation gets to where it wants it to go. Banking system is helping it out. It's putting its foot on top of the Fed's foot on the brakes, right? But then you head over to the fiscal side. We're not, we're not necessarily passing new legislation, but we are beginning to spend the funds from the um, Inflation Reduction Act. And if you look at the deficit, um, the deficit is crazy right now. And if you look at it from a historical standpoint, we've we've almost really never in history had a deficit this high a percent of GDP with the unemployment rate this low, 
we kind of essentially have a wartime yep. budget right now, but during peacetimes, right? Yep. We, we are spending at wartime sort of extreme measures, even though the story we're being told from the administration is, hey, the economy's robust, everything's great, right? So uh, Wilson is basically saying we have this sort of stealth liquidity that's mm -hmm. been supporting the market and, and is carrying it forward for some period of time. Now, he he warns that you, you, you can't do this. You can't jam the brakes monetarily and, and hit the gas fiscally for too long without creating consequences that become pretty bad, a resurgence in inflation, you know, be, being one of those dangers, right? But he says it, it it can, and looks like it is, materially pushing the reckoning, you know, forward by a matter of quarters. How many TBD at this point in time? But curious to get your reaction to this dynamic. Is is, is Does this explain for you a good part of the reason of why this, this recession hasn't manifested yet? Or do you have a different thesis? Well, I think okay. There's a lot, lots to unpack. First of all, that that is the pre-election year dynamic, right? It's the fiscal sure. Strategy, right? But the um, you know, when the when the in February I was constantly posting March, 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 right? Because I was seeing from an intermarket perspective the conditions were there for something to happen. Yeah. The regional bank dynamic hit, and people were saying, "Oh, that's your credit event," which I said first week of January, you know, will come at some point this year. And I said, "No, I don't think that's it," because that was with the regional bank uh, in quotes crisis. That was an excuse to pump even more money into the system. Yeah, it's, it's the portfolio rebalancing effect. I mean, basically, it was QE, right? I, I put Which out we did through the BFTP, right? Yeah, right, right. And, and so I put out that post, and, and it got a lot of play. And people think I'm being conspiracy theorists, but it's like, all right. I said, you know, how do you how do you stimulate an economy that has high inflation with a manufactured banking crisis? Right. The term manufactured, I get, is is a hot word to use in that in that framework, but I think it's there's some truth to that. The idea that it became sort of a a reason to increase the money supply, right? For a moment in time, right? At least to stave off uh, those dynamics. Um, now on the AI thing real quick, I think it's fascinating the level of cognitive dissonance that's happened in the market. So, okay, AI is gonna cause tremendous efficiencies. Okay, it's gonna be disinflationary. So why is it that long duration yields have risen? <laughs> okay, AI is supposed to be uh, productivity enhancing. Why is it that small caps, small cap companies, which should benefit the most from it disproportionately, why are they not, from a forward-looking perspective, really outperforming? Like, There's a lot of things which don't make sense relative to even that narrative, I think, in terms of the way certain parts of the marketplace, which are should, in theory, be most sensitive to the benefits of AI. Of AI, yep, got it. Right? I have not really responded to. Um, but, you know, keep in mind, it's like, <laughs> the yield curve is still screaming recession. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what's wild to me. It's like, you know, I, I put that post out too. It's like, uh, what? So the yield curve only matters when stocks go down. So nobody, nobody's been talking about the inversion. Nobody's been, but they will now if stocks start going down again. It always goes back to that point that narrative follows price. So uh, I think there, it, it still is ultimately about lags, right? So the Fed was very late to hike rates, right? Just like the Bank of Japan, which well, I'm sure we'll talk sure, about. A little sure. later. Yeah, the Fed, the Fed is always a slow follower. Yeah. Right, and and the point is like you can make an argument that part of this is not just the fiscal side, but it's also the the mismatch from you know eight nine months earlier, right, of rates being very low relative to inflation, mm -hmm. right? So you can argue that's another lag that caused the melt up to begin with. The other part of this is you know I'm I'm a bit cynical. Policymakers know that they get voted in based on nominal growth, nominal. Yep. Because real is a hard concept for most people to understand, right? They, yep. they somewhat know, but they don't understand that 
it's it's like you know for, so for a lot of people for example say well listen you know uh if you're saying it's uh, not a new bull market uh but we hit the s p well then you were wrong okay hold on the, the s p level from november of 2021 you can break the nominal highs you still have to go up another 10 15 percent to actually break the real inflation high. High. Yeah. right it's like people forget these dynamics but yeah, it's, the, it's amazing if you inject any math you already lose probably 90 percent of right. people which which by the way is i'm glad you say that because that that is purposely why I have this, what I call persona, especially on Twitter slash X, because at, at the core, I'm a quant, right? At the core, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm about empirical research. I put these research papers that anybody can look at and backtest. But if you're just referencing numbers and math, you're not going to get any engagement or attention. Mm-hmm. So you also have to frame it. As much as I always counter the idea that, you know, I, I myself hate narratives, the reality is you do have to tell a story around the numbers. Because the most to your point, the moment you inject numbers, it doesn't doesn't matter, right? right? Um, so I think it, broadly speaking, for, just like everybody was wrong about a recession hitting this year, last year, everybody's probably going to be wrong about a recession hitting uh, next year because people are saying it's not going to hit this year. Right. Anything, well, and to be to be clear, I'm not even sure the narrative is next year. I think the no, exactly the, right. Right. The increasing right. narrative is we missed it, folks. We're good. Right. Right. It's it's not a. And this is the thing. It's like if anything, all this is a reminder that nobody knows what tomorrow brings. Going back to the start of the conversation, so you can't. It, opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. I really do believe that. That's that's a great point. Yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, all right. Well, so it's talking about the unknowable future um, and the lag effect. What is your outlook for recession? I mean, do you, do you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it something you see that's inevitable as the lag effect finally is able to express itself? Um, again, this point of sort of stealth liquidity that I just mentioned, yep. some people might ask, well, why, why can't they just keep doing that through the election? Right. And, and, you know, maybe we don't have it at all until the next, you know, presidential cycle. Right. So what, what would, what would your, rea- your answer to that be? Well, I mean, they could. I mean, it's, if it's like bread and circuses, if uh, if Musk ends up fighting Zuckerberg around two, right, to distract the population <laughs> from inflation, I mean, I, you can argue that yeah, sure, they can keep doing it. But okay, so so when you look historically at recessions, what's the what's one of the main drivers of recession? Housing. Okay, so this is really interesting, I think, in terms of the interaction of equity markets to housing. I have been very loud and admittedly wrong in saying that lumber is warning that housing is in trouble. Because lumber really kept on weakening, weakening. Home builders diverged, obviously, and did well, largely because of margin. But you know, from a construction perspective, lumber is a major driver and tell of construction activity. Okay, so everyone thought, me included, I think everyone thought that mortgage rates at levels that they're at now would be enough to break the housing market. But then you have this inventory dynamic, right, which is preventing housing prices from going down, which props up the entire economy, you can argue from a credit creation perspective. Okay, well now there's been a bit of a reacceleration in housing. Well, what's causing the reacceleration? The wealth effect of the stock market, mm-hmm. right? So as stocks have gone higher, people are like, yeah, you know what? It's a 7%, 7.5%. I can probably still refinance. 
my other portfolio is doing great. I'm, I don't mind paying that. Yeah. It's a stretch, but hey, my, you know, NVIDIA uh, yeah, keeps going yeah. up. So. NVIDIA's going to help pay for that mortgage, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a joker. But the point is like, all right, so what if you have a credit event? What if you have a, a tail event where equities go down hard, which ends the bear market, which I know sounds crazy. I th still think we're in. Well, then now housing becomes more problematic. You know, it's like the inventory issue gets solved with fear. The, the housing inventory issue gets solved with fear, not with more construction against already still elevated mortgage rates. You have that, then you're going to have a recession because housing would tell you you're entering a recession. So I do think housing still remains sort of the, the key question mark as to the when of the recession. But if I'm right about the link between the wealth effect from the stock market to housing relative to mortgage rates and this concentration of inventory by people that own second and third homes that might have to unleash that those homes at the margin, that's, I think, what creates a self-fulfilling recessionary uh, pressure. Okay. Um, I got housing on my list here. I'm going to bump it up now to, to this part of the conversation. Um, so I, I briefly mentioned Michael Kantrowitz earlier. Um, are are you familiar with his HOPE framework? Where yeah, H, the H in HOPE is housing, right? So for him, housing is, is a leading indicator in terms of how we fall into recession. Actually, hope is the same progression. We climb out of recession too. Housing is one of the first to, right. to recover. Um, but the way in which Kantrowitz looks at it is, is okay, look, you get, you get a lot of data that shows you that the housing market is in trouble, rolling over, right? Even though prices nationally are only down about a percent from a year ago, not, not very much. You got a lot of markets where they're down double digits in a lot of what used to be the hotter markets. You've got this inventory issue you talked about, sales have cratered, you know, yada, 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 right? Then you have orders and you have profits, right? That's the O and the P in hope. And those are, the bloom is off the rose in both of those as well. So the E in his model, at least, that's your last bulwark against falling into recession. That's employment. And employment has been incredibly robust, um, if you believe the numbers. And we could talk about that if you want to. Um, but there's a lot of people who think that, um, yes, housing is important, but actually it's employment that's even more important, right? That it, it really only matters once the employment market starts cracking, where that, because we're such a consumer-driven economy, that that's what gets people to really have to, you know, rein in their, their spending. And then that's what, you know, makes the recession kind of the, the vicious cycle that, that the economy falls into. Um, curious to hear your thoughts on that and 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 as you look at the employment numbers here where do you think employment goes from here given the collective data points that you monitor so correct me if i'm wrong but i i i'm fairly sure I've, I've i've heard this said on one of my own spaces that typically when you look at unemployment um the part of unemployment that leads is the construction side mm -hmm. which again goes back to to housing um so the employment side is interesting. Yes, you obviously need to have un unemployment pickup for housing to also break. Um, or maybe you need just a student loan repayments at the margin because you can argue the effect is the same. Suddenly money is coming out of the market to be diverted into something that's not going to be used for one's day-to-day -day activities. Right? Totally I mean, agree. And just to interject to say, after we talk about employment, would love to talk about your thoughts on whether the student loan repayment, if it indeed goes into full effect, potentially could be the trigger right. that really causes the unwind here. Yeah, no, and and, and it's good because it's good we're, we're uh, sometimes like you're a pro, you know exactly how to pull this stuff out. The um, I put out that post uh, last month or the month before I said, you know, it seems like a butter, there's a butterfly effect set up, right? Where student loan payments resume, 
that suddenly makes people, especially younger people, probably travel less because they have less discretionary cash flow to play with. That then maybe means the Airbnb types of dynamics end up breaking. They're already breaking, by the way. You can see that yeah. from a lot of the data points. Then uh, that then results in, at the margin, some of those properties getting sold off, comping whole neighborhoods that then creates a self-fulfilling fear cycle. It, it's a chaotic system. I always go back to it. Butterfly effects are real when it comes to financial markets, especially when it's a very levered system. But but the unemployment side, you know, unemployment will lag on, on this. Now, if you were to have a real dislocation in the bond market, and by dislocation, I mean credit spreads widening, which is typically what you see not only in advance of a recession, but, you know, as a credit event is taking place, right? right. Where suddenly, you know, defaultress premiums are soaring. That's going to cause unemployment. That's going to cause the margin uh, employers laying off. And it's also another interesting, going back to the cognitive distance point, I thought AI was supposed to replace jobs. Uh, it's, I, I get it's a long-term dynamic, right? But it's, it goes back to how there's a lot of distance. But the, the broader point here is housing, yes, does tend to lead. Now, if the market were to break, again, there ends up being a ripple effect, I think, to housing. And there are a lot of very smart people in the housing side of things that say it doesn't matter that housing affordability is worse than 2006 because these inventory dynamics are not going to go away. When you look at very basic statistics, the estimate is that you have roughly 3 million homes that are short, that need to be, in quotes, built or that need to be listed to satisfy demand. But you also have 10 million homes that are second and third properties. Yeah. And you have, you have a, uh, there's some set out there, like there's 11 million homes in America, something like that, that are vacant. Right. M they, many they, of which are second or third homes or whatnot. But I mean, you, 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 you have a ton of vacant inventory and then you have, sorry to interrupt, but you, you also have the Airbnb side of things, which right. the moment that those stop being cash flow positive and are just cash flow drains on, on their owners. And there's a ton of people, a lot of Airbnb inventory right now, was taken on in the past two years as people jumped into this because it was the hot new trend. That's a whole nother set of inventory that's willing to start coming onto the market at fire sale prices. The people are like, look, just stop the hemorrhaging. Just get me out of this thing. Right. And, and, and because the neighborhood are comped at the margin, that might cause other sellers to then kick in. This right. is what I'm saying, fear to solve it, right? So yeah. it really, at the core, it's a concentration issue. And it's a, it's, 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 you're right, it's available. It's just not, nobody's using it. It's funny, again, an, an, another story that doesn't make sense. So everybody can work from home and you work from anywhere in the world, but these vacant homes, nobody wants them and you can still work in them. Like it, there's, there's so I'm saying the, all this stuff, I think to me is really, there's just disconnects in terms of the way people are thinking about things. And I think this is what they, 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 they are. And I, I want you to keep pulling that thread, but yeah. I apologize. I'm going to interject one more time just on the housing thing, because this is so fascinating and you're a good mind to talk about this with, which is a question I've been asking a lot recently is the reason why the housing markets are kind of frozen right now to a certain extent, is it's a standoff between buyers and right. sellers. Correct. Right. Buyers are saying, look, least affordable time ever to own a house. I don't want to buy houses at today's prices, at today's mortgage rates. Right. And the sellers are saying, um, okay, but we we don't want to lower our prices yet. And if we can just all hold pat and hey, we're all sitting on, they have the added incentive of sitting on low mortgage rates. Right. So if there's a disincentive to sell and move because you're going to your next house is going to be a lot more expensive, right? Um, so you're kind of having this, this standoff where the sellers are saying, look, we're just going to wait you out, right? We think eventually the Fed's going to lower interest rates and then the housing market's going to catch back on fire again. And we're just going to all hunker down and hey, everybody, nobody sell, right? And my question has been, okay, 
I get it. Like, let's say they're colluding like that, right? Um, and they've got a lot of incentive to collude. Uh, there are still transactions that are going to happen, though. Just organic transactions that Life happen happens. because of death, divorce, job right. loss. You have to move for a job, whatever, right? And because housing is priced at the margin, that's going to be the price discovery vehicle. And yes, it might take longer because you have a slower number of transactions setting it, but it will set the price, right? right. And as it begins to, to do so, you get to a point where if you're those sellers that are banding together in solidarity, there is a first mover advantage to bolting from the herd. Yeah. Right. If you say, you know what, I think prices are going to continue to go down from here. Let me sell now. Um, I might, you know, discount by five or 10%, but I'm still getting 90 to 95% of the, the top price. I don't want to be the guy who's holding. And then all of a sudden the market's down 20, 30% and I'm stuck. Right. So you, that organic price discovery should continue up until a point where folks start to bolt. And right. that's where I think everybody who is, you know, not able to ride this down. Like there's a lot of boomers where the vast majority of their retirement savings is the home equity that they have. Yes. And if they start fearing that that might be going away, well, then they're going to sell to try to capture as much of it as they can. And it begins to become this potential waterfall. And then to your point, as that starts happening, you get the Airbnb people, you just get everybody else who's getting right. injured by where prices have come down to now, they have to start flooding the market. So look, is that gonna exactly happen the way I described? I don't know, but I see the potential for it. So there's people right. who just say, hey, nobody with a 3% mortgage is gonna sell. I'm like, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't be no, totally no. rock solid in that. I'm, I'm with you and, and it, it, I keep using that line, which is a play on the Ernest Hemingway. How do you go broke or slowly then, you know, all, then all at once, yeah. right? It's all at once, right? So, it's, so but, but, but it's, interesting. it's like, even, so you mentioned earlier, right? So home prices are what, down 1%, you said on average, right? Over the last yeah. year. Well, that sounds pretty bad after inflation for what's supposed to be an inflation hedge. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right. So even if home prices very slowly go down, but inflation stays at three, 4%. What you're not going to people selling because they start saying, I thought this is an inflation hedge and it's not acting that way anymore. Maybe I should actually sell my home and, and take those proceeds and go into a real inflation hedge. Right. I mean, because you've pulled forward so much in the home value side. So mm -hmm. now the other thing is, you know, talk about um, the effect of the economy and recession. Let's say, you know, here's another strange uh, uh, connection. I put out that post saying, well, what if uh, you know, the Bank of Japan may end up being the uh, the thing that really drives mortgage rates higher, which sounds weird. Yeah, but, elaborate on that for listeners. Yeah, yeah it sounds weird. Okay, so, uh, and this goes back to the carry trade. Okay, so if you were to have a reversal of the carry trade, for those that are not familiar, the carry trade basically is this well-known dynamic mechanism, whatever you want to call it, whereby because Japan has had basically 0% rates forever, right, for the last 30, 40 years, Money borrows from Japan because it doesn't cost anything. It's an interest-free loan and then goes into higher yielding currencies and chases risk assets. Okay. Japan's got a real inflation problem now. Okay. And they are the latest to the game to raising rates or to doing anything to try to counter their inflation against rising oil prices and a falling yen. How does that in the world connect to housing? If you end up having a reversal of the carry trade, what happens to stocks? They probably go down because those borrowers of Japanese interest-free loans have to now sell the asset that they use those loans on. That creates falling markets, which creates falling housing, which might uh, falling markets, falling housing, and then it might actually impact then unemployment. Because let's not forget the stock market is also a big driver of why companies do what they do. Right? The more volatility, volatility there is in the stock price, the the more uncertainty there is in terms of 
should you be hiring more people? Or should you be laying people off in case the volatility gets larger? Which means that then credit spreads then widen in terms of the borrower, consumers in the US and mortgage rates. So my point is like, we're in a very interconnected world. Small things can have big impacts. I'd argue uh, that back, Japan- Back to your butterfly effect. Is that, right, and, and I keep saying Japan is like the Mothra, right? From the Mothra. Godzilla. <laughs> and it's, it's like the ultimate butterfly. Right, from the <laughs> now, now let me, let me preface this by saying something which I think is actually really important. Um, everyone has a bias. Everyone has a bias. Absolutely. People are permabulls. They're always going to be biased on the bull side. People that are permabears, they're always going to be biased on the bear side. I have a bias too. My bias is not to be a permabull or permabear. My bias is to want to see the flight to safety trade, meaning high volatility in assets that results in money going into treasuries, because that's where my funds live, ATAX, Roro, and JoJo. Now, why am I saying that? And I actually think this is maybe another interesting direction we can take the conversation, because I often don't see too many people talk about this. You have passive investments and you have active investments. Okay, so you see to yourself, what cycles, going back to the cycle discussion, what cycles do active managers tend to do poorly in cycles where they're more apt to having whipsaws, right? Where you get a trade signal and the market does the exact opposite of what history would suggest it tends to do over time. So if you're in a pure risk on world where there's very little volatility, active managers don't do well. Right. Why? Because you get whipsawed playing defense. Conditions are there for the accident. You don't have the accident. Market keeps going higher. So you're lagging because you're playing defense as the market keeps shooting higher. So that's not good. That's rates for passive, terrible for active. Um, and also an environment which is purely about large caps. Okay, so now this is another thing which I think is really fascinating to think there. I've been, I've been really kind of framing this just to myself and looking back at the last 10 plus years with my own mutual fund launch in 2012. You think about asset allocation. How do you beat the average? How do you beat, in quotes, the market? You have to choose the right average. Right? It's not about stock picking. All the studies show it's ultimately about asset allocation. So to beat the market, the average, you have to choose a different market, different average. How do you do that? At the purest, most rawest way of doing it, the way to beat the S&P or the market is to do one of two things. You either tilt small, small caps, mid caps, mm -hmm. or you tilt international. Right. Right. Okay. So then you think about why is it that hedge funds and active managers myself included with my rules-based funds, which have nothing to do with my discretion because it's based on signals and, and indices. Why is it that the last 10 plus years have been so brutal where everything's favored passive? Because it's only favored largely risk on post QE3 with the exception of 2020 and then late 2018, uh, fourth quarter decline, but also favored just large caps. So you can't really get alpha. You can't beat the market, beat the S&P when it's the only game in town. Right. I'm saying that because my bias is that I want to see one of those dynamics break from a cycle perspective, because that's the only way my funds stand out, right, from the business side of investing. So maybe I'm biased in being ultra negative here, saying I think the conditions favor a credit event, because I know I need to have that to have a chance for my own funds as somebody who's in the arena as an entrepreneur bringing different types of strategies to market. But if I'm right, not only do I hopefully have a chance, but hopefully other people that are listening are not doing the wrong thing, the wrong thing being overly leveraging and taking on too much risk at the exact time that something might change. Right, right, right. Um, and, and that's obviously the danger that we have right now with sort of the regular individual investor who just kind of, you know, glances at the business page maybe once a week, right, right? Um, where the headlines are telling them, hey, 
you know, looks like everything's good now. We, we 2022 was the bullet, you know, we're, 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 we passed it now, sunny skies ahead, market's doing great, time to get back in the pool, everyone, right? And so the, the narrative, the dominant narrative may be sending a dangerous signal, you know, if we are indeed nearing or, or close to a turning point, like you're saying, we potentially could be. Right. And by the way, to the point, right, to the, sorry, not to interrupt, but to the point about the lags, it's so funny to me, all these big banks pulled back their recession calls, just as the fastest rate hike cycle in history should now start to impact the economy. It's a 9-12 month lag, which is right about now. And now everyone's saying there's no recession. The lags are just about to hit, which means the volatility should hit. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's my bias talking. But it kind of well, makes sense that it has to happen here. Well, so again, back to the lag effect, right? I mean, uh, it, it, you have to make an argument that it is different this time, yeah. that there is some reason why the lag effect shouldn't matter. And to be honest, I mean, the only really, only really compelling reason I could see is that we just expect economic growth is just going to furiously increase and sustain for a good long while. And I don't see any real indicators for that. In fact, the only indicator I see of that right now is GDP now currently has Q3 GDP at four plus percent. Um, that's a notorious indicator. It generally always starts high and falls. Um, I'm, I, I'm going to guess it's going to do that this time around as well. But there, there's other than that, there's no real sense that I, I can point to or the people that I interview are pointing to to say, oh, here is the surge now in, you know, sustained potent economic growth that could potentially act as a shield to that now to my earlier point you know they may be able to to delay it i think they have to a certain extent with this stealth liquidity that mike wilson was talking about where why we're deficit spending so much even though quote unquote everything's fine um how much longer that can push things off honestly i don't know i don't know the answer to it i just know the longer we keep spending like this to push it off the higher the potential that some really uh, undesirable outcomes come back out from that, one of which would be inflation, which is exactly you know uh, what what the Fed has been trying to fight for the past year and a half that's creating a lot of the lag effects that we're talking about here. Right, right, right. And, and, and the structural, okay, what happens behaviorally in these types of environments? Overconfidence. Right. Okay, what, what does overconfidence lead to? Leverage. What does leverage lead to? It always leads to crashes. It's always the precursor. It's the it's the global margin call. I mean, structurally, it's like I put that 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 tweet up, and and again, it sounded dramatic. I said, you know, we're we're on the verge of another global margin call, and I wasn't saying that as a permanent bear. I'm saying that because literally, you look at margin levels relative to free cash balances, you look at sentiment, you look at the overconfidence. Yeah, it's it's more than just everybody on the same side of the boat. It's everybody on the same side of the boat, and they're holding an anvil. So can you, same set of the boat and they're holding an anvil, great analogy. Um, and I love analogies, as you probably know, it's a good one, I might steal it. Um, you talk about the margin, uh, the margin stats that you just cited there. Because um, I'm curious because yes, speculation equals people taking on leverage. What's interesting about where we are right now is the leverage costs so much more yeah, and nobody than cares. it did in previous parts. Yeah, and, and nobody cares until they do, right? Now, I think, I think this is, um, so I always go back to 1987 as a really fascinating parallel. Not that you have to have a Black Monday, right? But 1987 was a pre-election year. 1987, you had a melt-up. The Dow was up like 38%. 1987, you had a crash. 1987, you had a Fed pivot. 
1987, the Dow and the S&P were still positive for the year. But it was a hell of a year from a sequence path perspective. Now, the argument around the 87 crash, which I think is somewhat debatable, is that the 87 crash happened because of portfolio insurance, right? which is this new innovation, which gave people a false sense of confidence around market behavior until something just went haywire. Okay, now let's apply that to today. Is there an argument to be made that the equivalent of, of portfolio insurance, something that can result in a structural, weird, haywire type of sequence in markets. Is there something like that today that we can point to? Yeah, it's zero DTE manic trading, which is leverage, right? So- Okay, I'm gonna ask you to explain that because yeah. I haven't talked about that much on this channel. So could you just briefly explain that for my viewers? Okay, so broadly speaking, options for the most part can be used for leveraging an underlying security. Right. It's a way it's a, it's a derivative of the underlying security. So as more and more of these retail traders have come in, they become more gamblers. I hate to say it that way, but it's just the truth by basically taking very levered bets, either on the call side, betting on some stock going up and a magnified move that way. Same day or on the downside, on the put side, zero DT, zero days to expiration. When you look at the type of trading activity that's gone on. Somebody sent me this stat earlier today. Um, something like 40% of options volume now is this literal gambling of zero days to expiration trading, which is amazing to me because all the studies show that intraday trading for the stock market ends up losing big time over time. Now you're actually magnifying it with options contracts, which are apparently ways of getting leverage and, and massive exposure to underlying securities. And then I go back to thinking, I think it was Buffett who used that line, said, you know, uh, derivatives, options are a weapon of mass destruction. Right. It's like with the kind of activity that's gone on in the derivative space, the mania on the volume side. And by the way, a lot of that is calls, right? Betting on further upside. I don't know. It just seems like that could be one of those things that is the equivalent of a portfolio insurance, something nobody thinks could be a, a systemic risk but may actually end up being a systemic risk because we've never seen this type of activity before on the derivative side. So again, my only point in saying that is, I don't know if we're going to crash or not. I know the Tinder's dry. It doesn't take very much to light it up, but there are so many interesting things which are moving so quickly, which are hard to model out. And if it's hard to model out, it's very likely that nobody's prepared for what could be the tail event if you could model it out to begin with. Right. So, so let me put some words in your mouth. Feel free to correct them in any way, but you as a, as a data-driven analyst are saying, look, th there's a lot of uncertainties right now. Um, there's some pretty big unknowns um, or, or pretty, big, uh, pretty big probabilities that we don't know how to calculate well right now. They could go big, they could go small, we don't know. But the fact that they could go big, we got to be really cautious of. And therefore, you know, you're saying, look, th this is actually a time to sort of step back and minimize risk until we get a clearer picture of what's going on. And yet instead, what's happening in the marketplace is we're telling everybody, no, this is the time, folks, to get back in the pool. And we're giving them these tools like these zero right. DTE options to say, and hey, you can even ratchet up the risk here because, hey, you're going to, you know, make a ton of money if you if your bet pays off for you, right? right. You're, you're exactly right. And now, now, but you said, okay, so what do you do about this? So let's say, the conditions are there for the accident and, you know, things could start to go haywire on the downside for risk assets. That's not me saying to go short or to go long puts. I'm very public in saying that those don't work over time because those are perfect hedges. 
So this is actually another, I think, interesting thing, which is underappreciated. From a portfolio construction asset allocation trading perspective, you don't want perfect hedges. Okay? Why? Because you, if, you want, if you're going to play with a perfect hedge, something that's directional, your timing has to be perfect. I was going to say, exactly. Timing becomes so important. Yeah. Right. It has to be perfect. Whereas if your expression of defense is lower your beta, utilities, consumer staples, healthcare, more dividend plays as opposed to capital appreciation tech plays. If your expression of risk off defense is treasuries, because now there's yield, there's carry. If your expression is gold, if your expression is the dollar, you know, what I call the four horsemen of defense, right? Those are imperfect hedges, meaning they likely do well when risk assets get haywire and go down heavy. But in the event that you're wrong on the timing and the market doesn't go down, you still have a chance at compounding. They're imperfect hedges. They allow you to be wrong, but still make money. Now, that's actually really important. And I, and I say this from experience, having backtested a lot of different things. So many people focus on the market going up or down. They don't tend to think about the timing, the path, which I always, I'm the first one. And I constantly say, it, path matters more than prediction. A lot of people get on podcasts, they talk about endpoints, but what matters is the dance in between the endpoints. Yeah. So it's more than just signal and more than just a thesis. It's how do you express that thesis pathwise with an opportunity set that allows you the chance to be wrong in your thesis, but not necessarily resulting in you being guaranteed to lose money. Shorting and puts don't allow you that. Those four, utilities, treasuries, the dollar, and gold, those tend to at least give you a chance. All right. Um, God, there's so much I still want to talk to you about here. Um, sorry, you said utilities, treasuries, dollars, and gold. Um, uh, given your market outlook right now, um, what, what, what type of assets do you think are appropriate for this type of environment? I'm going to assume definitely these four for, yeah. for at least part of the portfolio. Um, are there other assets that you are particularly positive on right now, given the market environment? And then conversely, any that you just wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole right now? Well, okay. So the, the term right now is the right one. Okay. So as much as, so the, if I'm right, there's a credit event that spreads blowout and that, you know, the bear market's not over. Okay. The the area to watch the most to buy into would be junk debt. Right. So at some point, if if the risk is there and it's real, it's kind of like the definition of profanity. You don't know what it is until you hear it. So yeah. you don't know at what point to get into junk debt until you start to see it really blowing out. Right. And then you'll probably be able to tell. But you know, and when you uh, say get into junk debt, I mean if you expect credit rates to credit spreads to rise, that's going to destroy right. the price of high yield debt. So are you Until talking getting into the short side or? Well, no, no what, I, what I'm saying is that, so you, in a flight to safety sequence, which again is what's been lacking since last year, you yep. saw it momentarily during the regional bank crisis in March, but you know you haven't had that sort of moving up the, the quality scale, right? Into yep. higher quality paper. My point is that if you have a credit event, because bonds tend to be, especially junk debt tends to be fairly illiquid, Spreads widened, but probably overwidens. Default risk premiums get priced in, but overly priced in because there's not much embedded liquidity in that side of the bond market to begin with. So if at some point you see junk debt in a credit event yielding 15, 20%, I think that's a hell of an allocation to buy into, right? Because there's going to be an overreaction as there always is, right? So I, the funny thing is like, I don't think people should be afraid of a credit event. It's actually where really big opportunities can be so that, that's a great point, and and I want to I want you to flesh it out to the full extent you want to. But I'm just curious here, um, and I know you already said that treasuries are part of your your yep. kind of core portfolio here. You know, I, I would think you would probably 
initially, if you're expecting rates to to, to bust out, you'd want to not be in high yield. You'd want to be in things like, like treasuries because right. that, that spread will widen probably because the high yield debt yields will be pushed up. Probably the treasury yields will be going down. So your treasuries right. will be giving you both safety return, uh, safety income, and then a gain. And then to your point, at some point you might say, hey, maybe this thing's overcorrected and now I can get some really high yielding debt that's not nearly as risky or, or not as risky as the market is currently pricing it as. Is, is that sort of the that's right progression? Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. And it's, okay. that, and, and candidly, again, that's what my funds are really built off of, which you haven't had really since 2020. I mean, my mutual fund was up, ATAX was up 72% in 2020 because it was in treasuries in advance of the COVID crash. You know, long duration treasuries collapse in yield, they rise in price, the stock market's going down. Yep. And then there's the rotation because there's the, the overreaction at the March low, right? As things kind of flip. But but that's the point. It's like when I when I put that that Phoenix, you know, giphy, right, on social media. Yeah. Or, or or I say Phoenix rising, or I say from ash to fire. I'm referring to that sequence, not the buy and hold idea of treasuries. But the idea that money for a moment in time hides out in treasuries, hides yep. out in high quality, in that dislocation becomes where the real longer term buys happen. I think you're much more likely to have that now because nobody expects it. And again, it could be China, it could be Japan, it could be UFOs for all I know, suddenly <laughs> aliens. It's like, who knows? But again, I'll go back to the conditions are there for the accident. If the conditions are there, typically treasuries are the way to play it. Last year was the dollar. The dollar can still benefit, I think, from that kind of a setup. But it just seems to me, given the positioning and the betting against treasuries, that the short squeeze potential for this convex move in long duration treasury prices going up and yield going down is actually massively underappreciated. Again, bias. Okay, with, with yeah. okay but but this, this is one of the things I noted here based on what we were saying earlier. So right now, um, you know, this this... Look, I mean, the, the market has been telling itself forever <laughs> over the past year and been wrong every point along the way. Oh, the Fed's about to pivot, right? Um, and at this point, I, I, what's so interesting is that the market's been wrong. The market's been the one that's had to readjust its expectations, and it hasn't mattered. Stocks have still gone up through this process, right? But anyways, um, even now, you know, the market is like, okay, Powell, you know, might not hike again, maybe one more quarter point, but pretty pretty done at this point. Um, it, and so the expectation is that that sets the groundwork for the Fed to start pivoting and cutting, right? Um, so, but, but, and so there's a lot of people that have been saying, hey, you know, treasuries are great investment right now for no matter what you believe, right? If you believe right, that the sure. Fed's going to pivot and happy days are here again, great. Fed's going to bring down interest rates and bonds are going to go up or, to your point, there's a credit crisis coming and everybody's going to run for the safety of U.S. Treasuries and that's going to push yields down and they're going to go up. So a lot of people have gone into funds like TLT and whatnot, which are long duration Treasury right. ETFs, and they've been kind of bruised in the past couple of months because rates have been creeping back up again, right? The 10 years, what, almost 4.1% as we're speaking here. Um, so what do you think is going to happen here to, to change the current trajectory here? Yeah, and by the way, other than the last couple of weeks, it's interesting because if you looked at TLT, it largely has just been range bound sideways up until like the most recent last you know week week and a half to so the Fitch downgrade. Um, while by the okay, way, okay, but, but but it hasn't performed this this year. The no, way no, that correct. People at all. bought in, yeah, that's yeah right. exactly. That's right, and and that makes sense because you have you know it's still been a largely a melt up type of environment. There's been no reason for the flight to safety trade 
because markets have been liquefying, right, by going higher naturally on the capital structure. But uh, look, the, the melt-up in equities has been so strong, it has to be almost something exogenous. Now, that's why I keep referencing maybe it's the reversal of the carry trade, right? which on the surface, you think, okay, that results in the Bank of Japan uh, maybe having to sell treasuries, a deluge of supply, but then at some point that turns into from a duration crisis to the credit crisis, which may still be the case. This is the thing about this this downgrade, which is so, so fascinating. In 2011, when S&P downgraded U.S. credit quality, the response by the Treasury market wasn't for yields to rise to price in default risk. The response by the Treasury market was yields collapsed as stocks collapsed. It was a classic risk-off sequence in 2011. Now, why is that? Because the reality is these narratives around stocks like Apple being safer than the U.S. government are outright stupid. Sorry. Apple does not own an army. Right. right. Or a printing like, press. Thing. Right. And, and, and the reality is the government owns us through taxation. So if the credit quality of the United States government is bad, th- does it make sense for the, the corporations that it taxes and the people that it taxes for them to have the same credit quality as before downgrade, before the realization? Of course not. So there could be this delay, right, where the downgrade suddenly makes people suddenly realize, hey, you know what? This is actually a problem. Volatility is going to increase because the government may have to now increase taxation because the credit quality is under attack. Mm-hmm. which brings the yield down on the long end and hurts everything else around it. So it could be a realization, suddenly event, or it could be, like I said, the, the end carry trade. But again, I go back to, it almost has to be something that comes from left field. Because yeah. that's always how this stuff works. Yeah. And, and by the way, just to go back to Lance Roberts, he, he has beat that drum an awful lot. He says, yeah. look, you know, the, the, the situation is set. Right now he's saying, look, the momentum is, bu- is bullish. And to try and get in front of that steamroller right now is, is a dangerous trade. Right. Um, but the the table is set for the, the fundamental weakness that we're seeing in all the underlying macro data to prevail in the long run. The trigger for that, though, almost by definition to do it, to trigger it, is going to have to be something that none of us is thinking. It's going to have to be a true black swan, which by definition isn't something you and I are watching closely right now. Right. right. No, exactly right. And and. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Again, I go back to if that's the case, then we were never in a new bull market to begin with. We were in the greatest bear market rally in history, which sounds, again, I recognize it sounds ridiculous. Somebody once said to me, you've never had a bear market rally last nine, 10 months. You never had a rate hike cycle this fast. Nobody knows is the point. And it's like for all the arguments of the Fed's going to keep hiking rates until something breaks. The thing that breaks is always with a delay that nobody sees coming, because if they could see it coming, they wouldn't have hiked rates to begin with this quickly. So to your point, it's got to be something that nobody's thinking about. But that's again, I go back to that's why it's more about conditions, not the mile marker. It's not. Right. It's, it, but irrespective, the one thing that we can say with some degree of certainty is that everyone or a large portion of the investment community is driving past the speed limit, given margin and leverage levels. That's how you have a multi multi car uh, buildup of a crash, right? I mean, it's, it's there's so much to real life that people don't apply to markets. It's it's mind blowing to me. Yeah, and you're kind of making the classic argument, which I totally agree with, which is it, 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 it's 
oftentimes impossible to identify what is going to be the the actual trigger that sort of causes the reversal. But what we can measure is the degree of risk, right? This is sort of the the, the sand piling up, right? You don't know which grain of sand is, is going right. to cause the pile to slump, but you can tell after a certain slope, okay, the odds for a slump are getting really high now, right? So it's exactly what you're looking at. All right, well, look, Michael, this has been great. There are so many comments I didn't get to that I'm very excited to hear your thoughts about. So we're going to have to have you back on again to discuss it. In the last couple of, of remaining minutes here, I just want to talk a tiny bit of shop on what you and I do for a living, right? We, we, we've had a, a really fun interview here. I've been the interviewer, but that's usually the seat that you're in, right? So you talk to lots of people just like I do. Um, first off, I, again, I got to give you kudos for the volume that you do and the quality, but I, I know what it takes to do the five to six a week that I do. And I believe most weeks you're doing more than that. So I got to hand it to you, man. You you win yeah. the stamina award here. Appreciate it. Um, but I, I'm curious, um, and again, we can go deeper into this when we have you back on the channel in the future. Um, but I'm just curious, like, who have been some of either your more notable guests that you've talked to, or maybe more importantly, like what, what kind of gems of wisdom have have really stuck in your mind? Uh, maybe just talk to one or two people that you've had on where they just dropped a pearl where you were like, oh my gosh, that is so valuable. And it, that was not on my radar before this interview. Um, it was a guy named Adam Tagart. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Was, you know, the, nice uh, try. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I want to come back on the show, like you said. It was, okay. So the um, actually, this one just recent recently uh, happened. It was, was look to your point. You do enough of these interviews for the most part. Everyone's saying variations of the same concept, right? I mean, for the most part. I mean, there'll be different takes on things, but you pretty much have hear, heard a lot of different things the more you interview different people. The one that was actually most interesting was uh, an interview I did with Dale Pinkert. Uh, literally a few days ago. And it's actually really interesting the way he framed it. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I know conspiracy theorists say that, okay? But uh, he made this point, which I'd never really heard before, but it actually kind of makes some sense. He said, okay, well, you know, I was playing out the credit event thesis with him. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, you almost need to have a credit event for the central banks to sell the idea of CBDCs, which I thought was interesting. And as, as I was kind of asking him, right, the implication there is what? You need to have some kind of crisis that is. It's so don't severe. let a crisis go to waste, right? Right, right. Yeah, it has to be so severe, and you know, with 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 the Fed now, and you know, just being opened up, it's it's curious timing, anyway. But it, it it's like, all right, well, there's some logic to that, right? It's like if you're going to try and push, you know, central bank digital currencies, you probably need a crisis to make people want to adopt it. Now, again, that sounds really conspiratorial, but so do aliens. <laughs> Well, let me ask this based on that, which is, um, you know, again, kind of putting on my, my, I'll put on the conspiracy hat for a second here, which is, um, it's all about to introduce something dramatic when you want a reason to be able to do so. And, and right. two, there's a great Winston Churchill quote, which is in a crisis, the ideas that get implemented are the ones that are already on the table. Right. N nobody wants to take yeah. a completely new idea that no one's ever tried before and employ it during an emergency. Right. Unless you're just literally out of all other options. Right. And so in in the you know pandemic crisis, we did for the first time, like send payments directly to households. Yep. Right. Now, that was done on the fiscal side. But there is no reason where the Fed just couldn't say, hey, we're creating this one time 
currency. You all have 60 days to spend this stuff. And we've created an account for every household in America, folks. Go out and enjoy, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I got to say, I have not done too many interviews on the, the, the details of the whole CBDC thing of late. Uh, and so my knowledge isn't as extensive as probably yours or certainly Dale Pinkert's. But, um, but I could definitely, you, you can make an argument that they've already kind of primed the pump. Oh, direct payments to people. Great. This is just another way to do it and quote unquote better way because they're telling us it's better today for reasons X, Y, or Z. And sure, right? Create the conditions, you get the outcome you want. I mean, that's 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 a truism in everything, right? I mean, it's like if it, there's that old saying, nobody can predict the future. So the best way to predict the future is to create it, the Yogi Berra. Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's one way to create the future, right? Create a crisis, you can argue. Now, I I don't necessarily buy the argument. I think it's, you know, that was one of those more interesting ways of thinking about things. And somebody once said to me, everything's a conspiracy theory until it's accepted as being true, right? So who knows, right? But, uh, and I appreciate the comment on the, the frequency of the content. I put a lot of material out, which is, is separate from my funds, which thankfully, because the funds are rules-based, Right, I can do because I have time because right. it's based on on these signals. But, but it, I, it is amazing to me that you put out as much content as you do, and you are running the funds on top of that. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the first of all, I learned from my days writing at MarkaWatch.com that the trick is to say the same thing five hundred different ways. Right, I mean, it's just the reality. I think of content generation, and also just I think from a content marketing perspective, you want to try to reuse concepts right as much as you can. But the um, look, the end goal for me, right? I've got my Lee Like Publishing entity company separate from the funds. My play is the funds, right? Like that's that's really my career. That's my objective is to see those really grow. I can't control them. That's the thing about investing, right? Everybody claims that they can control their portfolio net worth. They can't, right? It's all about cycles. No gurus, only cycles. Mm -hmm. But I put all this content because I want to keep the attention and eyeballs and eardrums focused on me, hopefully because there would be a halo effect when the cycle comes the way the funds for them people to want to allocate to the funds. So, you know, you put a lot of material out there because you're trying to stay in the game long enough for the cycle to come your way. My bet is it's going to come sooner than later. The truth is the last two, two and a half years have been brutal for me in terms of just seeing those funds go through one of the most incredible drawdowns in treasuries in history, the risk offside failing, by the way, risk off meaning default risk off which is why it's a flight to safety trade. It's not yeah. no risk, right? It's The terminology is important there. Um, but I do think, you know, if, if speaking about uh, Churchill, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure we use that quote, if you're going through hell, keep going. Yep. And I've been going through that and I'm not going to stop going through it. And I'll keep putting content out and I'll keep blocking, let's say if I have to, uh, on social media. But hopefully, hopefully people can at least appreciate the perspective. To me, life is really much more about perspective than anything else. All right. Well, look, um, that's a great point. Um, look, we have you back on. Maybe that's a point we can spend a couple minutes really delving into here. But because we're we're at the end of the hour here, um, your funds, you know, I think of them as as like tools, right? In other words, they they work well in certain conditions. Right. And you you're just saying, look, in the past couple of years, the conditions haven't been great for these tools. But it's not like you are an active manager there who's picking a bunch of stocks and, oh, just the stocks I picked, you know, were wrong for this quarter. It's just, no, no, no. I, I, I want you to be able to depend, J just like if you buy an ETF on GLD, right? You just want that ETF to track the price of gold. That's all it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to try to hit other home runs in there. That's just its job. And if the price of gold goes down for a year, well, GLD is going to go down for a year, right? 
So can you tell people really briefly what the mission of each one of these funds is? They're all variations of the same concept, which is that they're leading indicators of volatility. And the best way to play that volatility is typically long duration treasuries. So they're designed to have these kind of tail risk types of uh, dynamics where they do really well, usually when you're in a risk off period where treasuries counter equities, which again was the problem in particular last year. Uh, the mutual funds got a little bit of a variation on that. So ATAX is risk on, risk off, but when it's risk on, plays small caps and emerging markets. Opportunity set has been terrible there because emerging markets have been volatile cash right, for over a decade going nowhere. So speaking about whipsaws, no, yeah. no, no one has been whipsawed more than, than I have in that fund because emerging markets are, from a rules-based perspective, part of that strategy, and they haven't done all that well. Right, Robo, and, and the rising right. dollar just murdered them for a long time. Yeah. Which is amazing, by the way. It's like, I remember back then when I launched the fund, ATAX, in 2012, the day before QE3, the argument was the dollar was going to collapse. It was the bottom. Opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. Yeah. So, and, and again, here comes the fangs. Here comes the S&P only momentum. So I get whipsaw around that. Then I launched Roro in November, 2020. It has an index, which is rules-based, which is a back test, but you can see it on marketvector.com. I happened to launch just before what happened last year happened with treasuries. So biggest drawdown in the, in the index is uh, Rose index uh, in its back test. And then Jojo, which is my bond fund. So, but they're all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to play off of leading indicators of volatility, but then more importantly, the opportunity set behaving on that volatility dynamic. The good thing here, which is why I'm stubbornly optimistic, and again, I'm biased, is that now I'm not squeezing blood from stone in treasuries because yields are a lot higher. So it's much more likely that the risk off flight to safety dynamic in treasuries returns just because your starting yield is not what it was in 2020, right? So there's, there's an opportunity there to get some real movement. So meant to be more on the satellite alternative side of things, five, 10% type of allocation. When they work, they work in a big way. When they don't work, you know, they don't work just like everything else. They're cycles. Uh, everybody is beholden to things outside of their control, including portfolio managers of funds. When you're trying to stand out in the industry, which is dominated by just Vanguard, you got to do something different, but you also have to have the cycle, allow that something different to work. Great. All right. Well, I presume too, when, you know, folks, my next question is going to be, where can folks go to learn more about you and your work? Um, presumably uh, on your spaces, uh, as you see conditions become more favorable for any particular one of those, you'll be letting people know, hey, based upon, you know, my analysis, this is a particularly good or, or you know, improving or, or, or worsening time for each of these strategies, right? So people can kind of follow your, stay on top of your perception of, of the conditions if they follow you on your Twitter spaces, correct? Yeah, and, and I would say I'm, uh, the, the way people can tell is when I'm really, really annoying is what it's how they can tell that the conditions I think are changing because I, I, I have to be loud in order to keep the, the attention and being loud often means being contrarian. Uh, that's just the, the truth. Um, but, you know, it's the thing. Yeah, conditions are dynamic, right? And whatever I think is going to happen next, if I could be totally right on a credit event. It's not going to matter if the if treasuries don't respond off of it. I could be totally right on a credit event. doesn't right. mean I'm going to get the full thing right in the funds because it's rules-based and the signals are not going to get the bulk of the move, but a good chunk of it, at least historically. Right. Unless you're being a great example. If I told you in advance the stock market was going to go down by 20%, you would have rubbed your hands together with glee saying, oh my God, treasuries are going to do phenomenally. And they just didn't last year. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, look, so in wrapping up here, um, for folks that would like to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? Where should they go? 
So it, it's at Lee Lagerport on there, on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Threads, all the all the places. And then of course there's you know the Lee Lagerport itself, which again is separate from the funds. It's it's the research, it's the the intellectual you know macro views on things, all kinds of interesting other dynamics that are teased out through that. Yeah, I, and, uh, and sorry to interrupt you in here, but yeah. I believe I believe we've worked with you to put together. Uh, a place where folks can go learn about the lead lag report and and potentially go subscribe and that's at wealthion.com slash lead lag so folks if uh if you're listening and you can't see this um just all one word slash lead lag uh, if you're watching the video we've got the link down below the video here so you can click there and get all that information from Mike. i just want to let you know that we already had that page set up for you there michael no no i appreciate that and and, and look it's um I'm really passionate, as most people can probably tell, right? Some people think I'm uh, emotional, which is kind of funny because I've got rules-based funds, which are meant to be completely unemotional. But I'll tell you something. I um, I grew up in the business. I saw my father's passion. Somebody who was an immigrant that came here, fell in love with the markets. Um, a lot of my energy comes from it being in the blood. And I'm going to keep pushing through and going through hell and 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 hopefully get to the other side of it. Uh, and that research is hopefully helpful because it provides a different perspective, different way of thinking about markets. And if you really want to understand markets, you have to go beyond your own confirmation biases, which means hopefully look at the lead lag report and look at others that don't necessarily agree with your viewpoint because nobody can tell tomorrow, but you can tell the conditions. I, I totally agree with that. And again, I just want to underscore for folks, um, I think one of the relatively unique value that values that uh, Michael's report brings is because he does what I do, meaning he talks to lots of, of top experts, literally every day. Um, he has the ability to process that, you know, what he's hearing from all these experts. The, the way I sort of look at what we do, Michael, is, is that we're bringing on people. Nobody has a crystal clear picture of the future, but I think everybody, for the most part, almost everybody has their piece of the puzzle right, that they're contributing to help us see as much as possible, right? And so you get to see a lot of pieces of the puzzle. And then, of course, you get to combine that with your, your own proprietary research and analysis that you do. So, you know, you're you're very different from the average person who's got their own newsletter that they're putting out there, because that is, in most cases, just their analysis. You have that, but then you're basically buttressing it with all the collective expertise of all the folks that you, you talk to every week. You're nodding as I'm saying this, but I just want to make sure folks get that key distinction. No, no, I appreciate it. And it's not one of those things where it's like, you know, this stock is going to make you 10x your return. Like, oh, that's nonsense to me. Right? It, risk management is the number one thing. I, 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 one of the ads I would run, right, in for the lead lag report was, you know, the saying, if you want to kill in the stock market, you have to not get killed. Unfortunately, I got killed in treasuries, right, with the funds last year. But that is just a mathematical truism. If you want to be up over time, you have to be down less, which means you have to slow down entering the storm and do so often, even if the accident doesn't happen with hindsight. And as long as I can emphasize the conditions to people, if I get just one of those right, then suddenly that makes up years of slowing down and not having uh, the possibility of something wrong go go uh, happen, right? So again, it's about perspective. Uh, I don't can't tell the future. All I can tell you is that it's raining or it's sunny. And by the way, just because it's raining doesn't mean you'll crash. Just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't, right? It's ultimately about probabilities. Great way to say it. Yeah. And and to your point about risk management. So a huge part of what Wealthion does is, you know, our job is to to educate the individual investor, try to 
reduce some of the information asymmetry that's out there between the Wall Street insiders and the, and the regular investor, but then give them the ability to take action based on that, that information, which for the average person, they haven't really been taught how to do this. School didn't teach them this stuff. Uh, they've got a real life that they've got to focus on. They can't really, you know, watch the markets as intently as, as professionals like you. So um, we connect them with financial advisors that take into account all the macro issues that we talk about here. And, and as you know, Michael, there, there really aren't that many individual financial advisors that do that. They're just the average guy just sort of says, "Hey, just be along the market for the long haul, and you're going to be just fine." Right. Um, and so we prioritize risk management very heavily in the folks that we talk to. And, and you know, one of our fund, one of our firms last year, their performance was pretty flat. I think they might have been up a percent for the year. And you might say, oh, well, zero to one percent, you know, how great is is that really that great? And you're like, yeah, when the market average is down 20 something percent, it's phenomenal, right? That's to your point about avoid, it's about not getting killed, right? Not getting killed is such a huge part of the equation for long-term success. All right. So anyways, with that, I'll wrap it up here. Um, folks, if you're um, uh, already working with a good financial advisor who takes all that into account, you know, all the macro issues that Michael and I have been talking about here, creates a professionalized or a personalized portfolio plan for you and then implements that for you, executes it for you while keeping you well involved. Fantastic. Stick with them. They are very, very rare. If you don't have one, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, consider scheduling a free consultation with the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. To do that, just fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Only takes a couple of seconds. These consultations, totally free. No commitment to work with these guys. Just a public service they offer to help people like you position as prudently as possible in advance of some of the implications that Michael you know, thinks might be happening here in the future. Um, Michael, it's really been a pleasure having on the program. Really nice to finally meet you face to face. We've been on your spaces. We've, we've had a, a vocal relationship so far, but it's nice to finally have a visual one. Folks, if you've enjoyed this interview with Michael, would like to see him come back on the program. Please support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. If you're listening to this live on Michael's Twitter space, want to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is just at Menlo Bear. All right. With that, Michael, I'll let you have the last word here, but but it's really been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on and giving us so much time and so much of your insight. Yeah. The only thing I'll say just real quick is um, most people tend to fix the roof after it's rained. Right? Yeah. And and it's, it's fact, when you look at studies on car crashes, most people tend to hit the brakes after the crash because your body is in motion. You have to be able to slow down in advance which has its risks because you're going to get to your destination slower, but at least you'll get to your destination. Very well said. And, and just to sort of analogize that, you, you may be doing things that increase your, your safety dimension, but maybe might decrease your potential return. Right. So in a year like this one, when you know some people are making you know massive gains because they're just rolling the dice hard and buying call options on some of these AI stocks, yeah, they may be able to outpace you in the short term, but their risk profile is totally different from yours. And if if this thing does reverse, as as all surges do, you know, if if you give yourself enough time to to tap the brakes and slow down before impact, you're going to be way better than everybody else who's driving too fast. Just to borrow your analogy there, I think uh, few understand this. All right. Well, it's been wonderful. Again, Michael, thank you so much. Look forward to having you back on the program again in the future. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.